turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I'm going to read uh, verses 6 through 8. And uh, this is a topic that is close to my heart. It's something that God has dealt with me about over the last few years. And um, uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that. But 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8, if you want to stand with me, that you're welcome to do that. Um, reading in verse 6 says, But godliness with contentment, or somebody say contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can't take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Somebody say content again. Uh, contentment is a struggle for each and every person, I believe. I believe that the, the world that we live in is against us being content. And so tonight, I want to talk to you from the subject of living with an open hand. Can somebody say that? Living with an open hand. When we approach God, we should approach Him with an open hand. Not a closed fist, but an open hand. And so we're going to pray and ask the Lord to speak to us tonight. Lord, I pray, God, that you would anoint your word. God, that you would open our hearts and minds, God, to receive the truth that's in your word, God, to be set free by it. And Lord, empower us and enable us to walk in it. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. You can be seated. Um, so it is the season of gratitude. Uh, November is the month that our social media feeds are filled with posts of Thanksgiving. Anybody doing the 30-day uh, November challenge where you're thankful for something every day? I've been seeing these posts pop up. And um, the truth is that our world needs a stronger dose of daily gratitude. Amen? We're living in a time of discontentment. When you look at all the facts, it seems like all of our progress in this world, all of our, our modern inventions, all the things that we have that are available to us are making us less content than ever before. And, um, you know, we love our car. Anybody love your car? Maybe you don't, but if you do, we love our car. And we have the best car in the world until our friend posts a picture of their brand new car. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, a few days ago, we don't do it right away. I mean, you don't want to admit it. We're like, man, you know, I'd like to have a new car. Somebody pulls up in a fine new truck and, man, you know, my, that old 2010 I'm driving is looking a little old all of a sudden. And, and all of a sudden we are confronted with things. You know, we're, we're fine with our Christmas traditions. Here's one that I, I, I thought about. A few years ago, we had some good Christmas traditions in our house. Nothing too out of the way, nothing too uh, time-consuming. And then people started posting pictures on social media of this little terrorist in a red suit called Elf on a Shelf. <laughs> and if you're a parent, you know why I call him a terrorist, because we were happy with how it went around our house until the elf came to our house. And then we are slaves to the elf for 30 days a year. We, have, you know, we are slaves to the elf. I'll leave it at that, just so I don't spoil anything for anybody. Amen? And so uh, we live in a world that is designed to keep us discontented. We're constantly bombarded by the message that you need more. Presented with images of lives that are better than yours. Confronted with all the ways that your life doesn't measure up to someone else. And so one of the greatest spiritual battles that we face is the damage that is created when Christians 
are discontent. When we are never happy, never satisfied, always restless and longing in our spirit, we create a wake of destruction behind us. I know it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal, but I'm here to tell you tonight that this is one of the biggest spiritual battles that a Christian will fight. It is the fight for contentment. It's the fight to find our satisfaction and not feel frustrated with life. So the earliest message of Satan to mankind was what? The earliest message to Adam and Eve was, Hath God said you shall not eat of every tree that's in the garden? What he was really saying is, you don't have enough. God gave you 99.9% of all the trees, but, I mean, look at that other tree. (laughs) That tree, you can eat it, and it'll make you smart. (laughs) I need one of those trees in my yard. Well, no, I don't. I don't want to destroy the future of the world. You don't have enough, is what Satan is saying to Adam. Has God said you shall not eat of every tree that's in the garden? So God has given them more than enough. And Satan still made them feel like they didn't have enough. It is one of his oldest ploys to point out to us the things that we feel are lacking in our lives, the things that we feel are missing in our lives, the thing uh, that, that challenges us that we wish we had and feel like we don't have. And so uh, discontentment is by design. The enemy wants us to live frustrated and fighting for our own desires rather than trusting in God. And so he's on a mission every single day to point out to you things that you should chase after that God never said you should chase after. He wants you to want things that God never said you should want. He wants you to pursue stuff that is less important than what God says you should pursue. I know there's just a few of us here tonight, but I'm just going to go ahead and share what I've got. Because I believe that we miss the point that this is one of the biggest spiritual battles that we'll ever face. Because Christians are living frustrated. They're living uh, in anxiety about what hasn't happened, what will become of my life. Will I ever get there? Will I ever have this? Or will I ever do that? and, And we are so worried about what we don't have that we forget about what we do have. And Satan is in the business of getting you to focus on what you don't have rather than what God has already given you. Discontentment is rooted in fear. Anybody ever heard of fear of missing out? FOMO? They, they invented a whole new word for it. It's called FOMO, the fear of missing out. It's uh, it started out as a way of saying that, that people can't get off of social media because their fear of missing out on something that's going to happen, right? They, they can't take a break or a day away because they're, they're afraid of missing out. But um, that isn't how it came to my mind when I was thinking about the fear of missing out today. I was thinking about any time that there is a bowl of any kind of snacks on our table and my children are around. And, and there's more than enough. Like they were so upset because we took all the Halloween candy and we put it in one bowl. And they were very upset by that. Like, I went and collect, what about my candy? And we're saying, there's more than enough in the bowl for everybody, but, but what about mine? Like, what if, what if they eat? The truth is, mom and dad ate all the candy. That's the truth. But they were worried 
that they were not going to get what was theirs, right? I collected it. I worked for it. And what if I don't have it? And, and I've, watched, I've watched him. In a, when I was a kid, we, did, we had one of those families where there's, and every family has this person. I, I think every family does. Y'all correct me if I'm wrong. But when we were kids, a lot of times we ate chips straight out of the bag. And there was one sibling that always controlled the bag. And that was the power position. And it was the oldest, Shanna, my oldest sister. She always controlled the chip bag. And she would dole out to us, you get a chip, and you get a chip, and you get a chip. <laughs> and we're just over there happy, oh, I got my chips. But then we got older, and we realized, who said that you get to control the bag? You're getting more chips than we are. And war and the chance household ensued. We would have knockdown, drag out fights over the chip bag. Why? It's like $2 back then for a bag of chips. Why would we fight over that? Because we were so afraid that they were going to have more than us. So afraid that we weren't going to get our fair share. And so this fear of missing out, it, 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 uh, it, it brings on this feeling of discontentment. Um, there was a Stanford study that they did a while ago on loss aversion. Um, and maybe you've heard it called risk averse. Um, and, and, and what it is, is it was a study on the consumer habits of people. And, and so they sent out these two groups of people to sell home insulation. Uh, they wanted to re-insulate people's homes. And, and one group of people, they went and they showed them all of the, the benefits of having this um, home insulation. And uh, they, they showed them how much money you can save. Look how much money you can save. Look what you get to gain, your house. And, and, and you, won't, you won't have to worry about the heating and all of that. That was one group. And then they sent out a whole other group that went and sold the same amount of salespeople, meeting the same amount of clients. And instead of telling them what you will save, this group told them, if you don't buy this, this is how much you're going to lose. And twice as many people bought from the fear-driven tactic than from the benefit-oriented tactic. And what it says to us is that people are driven by fear of missing out. Fear of what I'm going to lose. Fear of what I'm not going to have. If I don't do it my way. If I don't fight for myself. If I don't get uh, my, my ducks in a row, then I'm going to miss out on this. So fear is a driver of discontentment. We fear we will miss out on something better. So we become discontent with what we have. Well, I only have one chip. And big sister has three. Anybody ever had that conversation with family? I only ate one slice of pizza. You ate two. <laughs> we're not thankful that we're eating, right? We're just mad because we have less. <laughs> and so fear drives discontentment. We become discontent with what we have. And so why is, is contentment so hard? Has anybody ever struggled to feel content in life? Why is it so hard? I'll tell you why it's so hard. Because it's, it's not like chopping down a tree. It's not like you just do it and then it's done. You don't like arrive at contentment and I'm content the rest of my life. Yay. You know, confetti comes falling from the sky like friend day. Like I've arrived at contentment. I'm happy. I'm satisfied. Life is good. Here's what contentment's really like. It's like cleaning up after your children. Because the moment that you pick it up, or your husband, 
Either way, that was for you, babe. <laughs> it's, it's like picking up after a child. The moment that you pick it up, they come right behind and drop something else. And, oh, oh, I got to pick that up. We are constantly in a battle for contentment, for satisfaction of our soul and spirit. It's like chasing a proverbial carrot that when we move the line for contentment or what we think will make us content moves. We thought that if we got that job, everything would be better, that life would come together. We thought that if we married that person, life would come together. I would never want anything anymore. Uh, uh, we thought that if we got that new vehicle, that, that we were going to be in a hog heaven. I'll be happier. We, we justify all the reasons to do it. And, and we every time that we move the line or we come into something, the line moves on us. Emmanuel Kant said, give a man everything he wants, and at that moment, everything will not be everything anymore. We're wired that way, aren't we? So when we look to the material world to bring satisfaction to our soul, we are pulled into a current and into a way of living that will inevitably take you farther than you ever really intended to go. I, I wanted a new house, so I bought a new house. Now I need new furniture for the new house. Right? This old furniture can't go with this new house. Look at this extra wide driveway. I think I need another car to put in the driveway now. And we got to buy a fence. And we got we to gotta do all of these things. I can't walk out of the house looking crummy in these old clothes. <laughs> People are going to think I'm house poor. So I got to get more. And, and so I got I, I to gotta have a new car to make the new house look good. Right? You see, the danger for so many is that the thing that I long for becomes the thing that I belong to. So I, I now have to work a second job to pay for my lifestyle because I'm, I'm house poor. And, and so we get caught in the bondage of seeking after these things. They dominate our thinking. They pull rank in our decision making. And when I am discontent in seeking money, I don't have money. Money has me. When I'm discontent and I'm seeking satisfaction and career success. I don't have career success. Career success has me. I don't have great clothes. My clothes have me. I don't have the relationship. The relationship has me. And so discontentment feeds the unhappiness in our world, leaves us in bondage to desires, poisons relationships with jealousy, rewards blessings with ingratitude, and will cause us to grumble against God and be uh, uh, unhappy with the things that God has allowed us to have. Discontent, J.I. Packer said, will destroy your peace, rob you of joy, make you miserable, and spoil your witness. We dishonor God if we proclaim a Savior that satisfies, and then we live life in discontentment. And, and so tonight, where I'm going with this, is that Jesus spent a considerable amount of time teaching about this very subject. He methodically addressed the soul-destroying impact of living life while reaching and grabbing for lesser things. And so um, Jesus is teaching, if you ever read the Beatitudes, um, it's, it's an incredible passage of Scripture. It really is, because it's, it's God throwing curveballs at humanity. Because everything He says in there goes totally against the grain of the way that we are naturally wired. Amen? 
Now, now follow with me. Everyone loves those who love them. But Jesus in the Beatitudes says, love who? Them that hate you, right? It, now, we can act all Christian. But when somebody doesn't like you and they don't treat you right, it's not easy to love them. But then you meet somebody that always compliments, oh, you look so nice tonight. I really like that. I don't know what it is about them, but I really like them. It's easy to love those who love us. But Jesus throws the whole thing on its head. And he says, anybody can love those who love them. But he says, I say to you, love those who hate you. Love your enemies. Everyone loves uh, 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 for people to know that they help the poor. Have you ever seen this? Taking a selfie with a homeless guy. Just bought this guy a hot dog. You know? <laughs> just, just hooked my homie Bob up, who's a veteran and he's homeless. And... And, and, and this, this kind of thing happens, like, we like to be noticed when we're doing good things, right? Now, maybe you're not as blatant as taking a picture of it and telling the world, look at me, I'm doing something fantastic today. Maybe that's not you. But we are naturally wired to want people to know when we do good things. But listen to what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. Jesus comes along, and he says, yeah, you should help the poor. But he says, you should not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He's saying the way that you want to do it is to glorify yourself. But he's saying, I'm saying that there should be a different motivation. And so you do it a different way. Jesus is turning all the ways that we think on their head. You see, it's normal for people to elevate themselves through religion. It's normal. Go on Facebook. I'm not going to get into that. There are all kinds of people who will use a lever of a subject well, our church does it this way, and our church does it that way. And, well, we don't do that. Uh, every Christmas and Halloween, they come out. Our, we're more holy because we don't do this or we don't do that. And, and people love to beat their uh, drum for their cause. It's normal for people to use religion to elevate themselves above, the, above others. But listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, do not pray like the hypocrites pray. He says, standing in the temple, beating your chest, speaking out loud. He says, instead, go to an inner room, and the Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Jesus is saying all the ways that you are tempted in your flesh to use and, and do the right things, don't do them that way. Then Jesus turns his attention to the contentment issue. Matthew 6, 25, therefore I tell you, Listen to what he says. Do not be anxious about your life. Do not be anxious about your life. I'm going to say it again. Do not be anxious about your life. I could stay there all night because there are so many Christians that have anxiety about their life. Jesus says don't be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not of more value than they? Jesus says, it's normal. Listen, it's the way of the world. It's normal to worry about the outcome of your life. Right? Anybody worried about the outcome of your life? You don't want to retire and eat dog food, right? <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to end up living on the street. You want, you want things to go well in your life. You don't want it to be meaningless. 
You don't want it to be pointless. You don't want your family to fall apart. You don't want relationships to fall apart. But Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life. Don't worry about your life. He says, are they not of more value? Are you not of more value than they? And he says, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Worried about dying? Guess what? It's not helping anything. He says, by thought, you can't add a single hour to the span of your life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. He says, so if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and is tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, here he says it again, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, somebody said, that's them. That's them. He says, that's the way the world does it. The world, the people of the world, seek after all of these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But he says, you, here's how you're supposed to live. They are worried and anxious about life. They're worried about how it's going and what the outcome is going to be and what they don't have. And they're discontented because they're watching $250 billion worth of ads every year. And and they're, they're always constantly moving from one thing to the next, never satisfied with life. But he says, but you, he says, you don't seek after those things but you seek first seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things what things clothes food raiment life right somebody say everything he's not just talking about money he's not just talking about clothes he's not just talking about food he's not just talking he says that all of them they're living their life in a totally different way than Christians are supposed to live. He says, that's the way the Gentiles live. But he says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and God will add all of these things to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus systematically approaches the issue of our anxiety about the things that we feel we need, the things that we desire, and and, and it's about everything in life. Jesus is pointing at all the things we reach for in life. And he says, the Gentiles seek after all these things. In other words, let's put it this way. That is their priority. That's their priority. It's what they live for. The reason that they're a killer on the job is because they put that job and career above everything else. The reason their clothes are always perfect and up to date is because they put that as a priority in their life, right? The reason they always eat good, oh, I'm getting close to home now, <laughs> is because they put it as a priority in their life. And Jesus, listen to what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say, figure out what you want and make it happen. Jesus did not say, you do you, boo. <laughs> Jesus did not say, Find out what makes you happy and then chase it with all of your passion. That's not what he said. Jesus did not say for the church, churchy church people, name it and claim it. He didn't say name it and claim it. He didn't say, Lord, I speak 
a $2,000 check into my pocket tonight so that I can go do whatever I want to do. He didn't say that. He didn't say name it and claim it. He did not say, I will give you everything that you desire. It's not what he said. He said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does that mean? It means God's will and God's ways. If I seek God's will and God's ways, the Bible says God will add everything that I need. And I will find what I'm seeking for. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so here, here's what I've really come to talk about is, is the, the kernel of this message came from a message I heard by uh, Pastor D.G. Hargrove about probably about a year ago. And it was a life-changing message for me because I had never heard it or thought of it this way. And I'm going to be transparent here is that ever since I was called uh, to preach and ever since I've, I've been an adult, I've been frustrated. I've been frustrated because it's never enough, right? God's using you. God's blessed me in a lot of ways. Don't get me wrong. But I was always frustrated because I, when I grew this much, I felt like I should have grown that much, right? And when I did this much, I felt like I should have done that much and never contented, never satisfied, always frustrated. I was the guy who was praying and crying in my pillow. Oh, God, when will it ever happen for me? Maybe you've prayed that. Maybe it's about your own thing. But when I heard this message, it changed. It, it clicked in me. Because what Jesus is talking about is living in a different ecosystem than the world lives in. They do it that way. They try to seek after things. They're discontent. They're unhappy. They seek after all these things of life. And they're missing out. And Jesus says that's not the way that Christians live. We live in a different ecosystem. Here's the ecosystem we live in. It's called a God gravity. It's a God gravity. We put God first and his ways first. And what happens is, you know what happens with gravity, right? Gravity pulls everything in, right? It pulls it all in. And so what a God gravity is, is when I'm living according to the correct priorities and I'm living according to God's ways, his will, his kingdom, and his righteousness, when I'm living according to those things, God is going to make sure that the things that he wants for me come to me, right? And he's going to make sure the things that are not for me are taken from me. And this is how he says to live. He says, don't live like they live. The way they live, they're always frustrated. They're always discontented. They're never happy. They're never thankful. They're ungrateful, unthankful, unkind. They're all those things. But he says, when you begin to live this way, you begin to live in a God gravity. And, and, and so... God starts to bring to me the things that he says belongs to me. And he begins to take from me the things that he wants me to give or the things that he doesn't want me to have. And, and so, in other words, it's a lifestyle of trusting God with your outcome. It's a lifestyle of trusting God with everything that you are. Now, now there are different modes that we live in. And, and I think they're represented well in the life of the prodigal son. How many of you remember the story? Wave your hand. I won't retell it since we all, I'll remember it. Look, how many more hands are going to go up? <laughs> the prodigal son, he comes to his father, and what does he say? He says, give. Oh, first word, give me. He's in acquisition mode. He's getting to that age where he's filling his oats, and he knows what his inheritance is. And all of a sudden, he's living in acquisition mode. Divide unto me my worldly goods. 
In other words, I want my inheritance. It's my money, and I want it now. Right? That's what he's, he's living in acquisition mode. He's looking to gain whatever. All Jesus said it this way. These things all the nations of the world seek after. He's saying that's how they live. They live in acquisition mode. That I need to acquire a boat. I need to acquire a car. I need to acquire some friends. I need to acquire a career. I need to acquire a spouse. I need to acquire uh, all of these things. None of them are bad things, but they're in acquisition mode. This was the prodigal son. He's in acquisition mode. Father, what I want from you is for you to give to me. I want you to know something. That the prodigal son, we use it a lot of times as a backslider, right? But I believe it's also a picture of spiritual maturity. He is the father's son. He is a child of the father. And all he wants, he doesn't want relationship. He does, he's not seeking the father's kingdom or even the father's ways. He's not seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. He just says, I want you to give me some stuff. And this is the first level of immaturity that happens in Christianity is that we get in acquisition mode. Oh, God, when we pray, God, give me this. God, I need that. I need you to come through. The great sugar daddy in the sky is going to help me out, and he's going to pay my bills, and he's going to do this. And God, I, now I need this. I need you to fix that over there. And Lord, I need you to do that over there. Somebody say acquisition mode. We're just looking to acquire the things that we want, right? That was the prodigal son. And the prodigal son isn't the only one. What about the rich young ruler that came to Jesus? <coughs> and Jesus invites him to come be a disciple. And he, the Bible says that he admits, I've lived a religious life. I've obeyed all the commandments. I've done everything that I was supposed to do. And Jesus says, okay, it's time for you to step into God gravity. And I'm going to pull from you the things that are not for you, that are not intended for you. So one thing you lack, go and sell all you have and come with me. Go give it to the poor. God gave it to him so he could give it away. And he goes away sorrowful because he's in acquisition mode. He says, God, I want to keep, I want to keep what's mine. I want to keep what's in my hand. And so he approaches God with a closed fist and says, God, I'm okay to open it real quick if you want to put something in. But don't you take anything out. He's in acquisition mode. The rich young ruler walks away from Jesus because he has much in this world. The second mode is recognition mode. The Bible says that there were people who left Jesus, left from following Jesus because they loved the praises of men more than the praises of God. How many of you remember that scripture? They, they left Jesus. They said, well, okay, we're done with Jesus because they loved the praises of men. They're looking for recognition. The next thing the prodigal son does is he takes all of those goods and he goes away into another country. Why does he go away? Is he shows up on the scene, he's the new rich guy. He is all the friends, all the wealth, all the influence that comes along with it. And he's looking to find his own way and make his own place in life. He doesn't want to live in the father's shadow. Everyone around here knows that it belongs to him. But when I get over there, everybody knows that it belongs to me. And he's living in recognition mode. He's searching for significance, gathering friends. And, and this is the second way uh, that we come to God immaturely is we say, God, use me. Now, I know you, you thought that was good. And there is a good way to say, use me. But I'll tell you, when I was 16, 17 years old, here's how I prayed it. I'll tell you what I prayed, and then I'll tell you what I meant. I prayed, God, use me. I want to be used. 
What I really meant is, God, I would really like you to put me up in front to be noticed. God, lift me up so people can see how awesome I am. Just, just shine a little light on me, Jesus. You know, just give me my 15 minutes in the sun. And I used to cry and bawl and squall, use me, Lord. And what I was really looking for is significance and recognition. Is it okay to be that honest tonight? It's a, it's a level, the second level of spiritual immaturity is to say, God, I want you to do some things in my life and through my life, but not really for your reason, not really for your kingdom. Really, it's for my kingdom. I want everybody to know how awesome I am, God. So use me, Lord. It's immaturity. The, the third is the sensation mode. The Bible says the prodigal went away from home and wasted his life, wasted his wealth with riotous living, prodigal living, immoral living, living for his own pleasures. Now he's in sensation mode. The Bible says in the last days there will be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. They want entertainment. They're in sensation mode. Make me feel good. Make me laugh. Make me happy, God. God, give me everything uh, just, just so that I feel good about life. And, and so um, th this was the prodigal son wasting his life in riotous living. It's all about how he feels. You know that there's some people in this world that they live according to how they feel. If it makes me feel good, it must be good. And if it doesn't make me feel good, it must be bad. The preacher that says the truth to me that hurts my feelings is not my friend to these people, right? The parent, the friend that confronts me about my mess is not my friend because I'm in sensation mode. I'm just looking to feel good about my life. And so... In all of these modes, they're seeking after something, right? The prodigal son was seeking, give me, give me, use me, use me, make me feel good. And then the final mode that I want to talk about is the kingdom mode. Somebody said the kingdom mode. Kingdom mode is when you seek first the kingdom. And when you seek first the kingdom, everything that is supposed to be yours will come to you. And everything that is not supposed to be yours will go from you. Think about the prodigal son when he finds himself in the muck and the mire, which is discontentment, right? Here he ends up covered in mud eating pig food because here's the lie. The lie is that if you eat the fruit, if you chase the dream, if you live for your desires, you live according to your own way and your own will, that you're going to somehow end up better and get what you want. But the truth is you always end up in the muck. You always end up unhappy, unfulfilled, stuck in sin. Now I'm preaching tonight. I know, I know it's quiet tonight, but I'm preaching tonight. It will always deliver you right back to the same place. And the Bible says the prodigal son comes to himself. And he says this. He says, Lord, he says, I, I know that in my father's house. He's not thinking about his house anymore. He says, there are servants. And the servants... Who live for his will. They don't even chase their own dreams, desires, and plans. They live for my father's will. And they are better off than I am after I've chased everything that I've wanted in my life. And he says, I will arise. And you know what? It's better to live for him than it is to live for me. 
It's better to be a servant in his house than to be the big dog in my house. Because all of my thinking, all of my planning, all of my lusting and desiring after what I want has brought me to a broken place. But if I can go back and I can just serve his will, I'll be better off. I may not have what I set out to have. I may have to give up some things. I may, I may never re- reacquire the inheritance that I wasted. But if I can just get back to his house and serve him, then I will be better off than I am on my own. My goodness. It's a kingdom mode. All of a sudden, he's not worried about his stuff. He's worried... If I can just serve him, if I can just live for him, if I can just do his will, he can tell me to do whatever he wants me to do and I'll go do it. Because I realize that I've been living and seeking after all these things and I'm still broken and unhappy. But if I can live for him, then I can be better off than I am now. And so we have to learn. Notice this. When he finally lets go and opens up his hand. The Bible says that he comes back to the father. Father comes running to him and he kneels down on his feet. The Bible says before he can say anything, the father falls on him and calls him his son. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm not a son. I'm not here for what I can gain. I'm not here to declare my rights. I'm not here. Just make me as a hired servant. Just let me live according to your will. Just, just let me live according to your plan. Just make me as one of the hired servants, and that's enough for me. His hand is now open. He's not grabbing for anything. He's not reaching for anything. Now his hand is open, and he's saying, Father, take my life and make it whatever you want it to be. And look what happens. When he grabs, he ends up in the muck and the mire. But when he opens up his hand and he says, God, Father, I, I, don't, I don't even care where you put me. Just, just take my life and let it be what you want it to be. Then the father says, hold on a second. Somebody go get the fatted calf. Somebody go get the robe. Somebody put a ring on his finger because all the things that the father wants to do for him all along, now he can do for him because his hand is open. Now he's living in a God gravity. Now God can begin to flow all of the things that he planned and desired for him into his life. Because he's opened up his hand to God. Listen to me. Listen to me. When it comes even to church things and religious things, we can approach God with a closed hand. God, this is what I want to be. God, this is what I want to do. And it's not just about that. It's about how it happens too. The Bible says Israel was delivered from Egypt, but they grew discouraged because of the way. They started looking around and said, well, I wouldn't have taken this. You ever rode with somebody that said, I wouldn't have gone this way if I were you? Well, who's behind the steering wheel? (laughs) Israel gets mad at God and discouraged at God because of the way that he's doing it. What they're saying is, God, we want deliverance, but we want it. And we're grabbing on to our vision of deliverance. And so they're stuck in the wilderness as long as they can't believe and trust God to do it the way that God intended to do it. They're stuck. As long as their hand is closed, they're stuck in the wilderness. But a generation arises that believes in the promise. And they have an open hand. They say, if we got to fight for it, we didn't envision that, but God will fight. Whatever you want us to do, we'll do that. And when they open their hand, God begins to deliver. They march to fight, and God knocks down walls. 
They go to battle and God's spirit shows up and does all the work. Because they're living in a God gravity. They're saying, God, I'm not going to force my will on you. I'm going to submit to you. And I'm going to live in the kingdom mode. And the kingdom mode is, God, bring to me everything that you want me to have. God, whether it's success or failure or whatever it is, God, bring to me. If it's failure to teach me, Lord, my hand is open to failure. God, if it's, if it's trouble, then my hand is open. To tr- whatever you want me to go through, God, whatever you want me to live through, I, my hand is open to you. I'm not going to dictate to you how it needs to happen. I'm not going to be frustrated and discontent with the blessings that you've given me and the valleys that you've walked me through. God, whatever you want to do, do it in my life. That's a God gravity. And listen, it's an easier way to live because you stop being stressed out about your future all the time. You don't have to live under the anxiety about the future. You just have to open your hand and say, okay, God, I trust you to bring to me whatever you want me to bring or want to bring to me, and to take from me whatever you want to take from me. The pastor that originally shared this thought, his name is D.G. Hargrove. He pastors North Cities in Dallas, Texas, and he told this story. He, when, when God began to deal with him in his life, is he determined to give something away every day as a reminder to himself that God doesn't just give. There's some things God takes away, right? There are some things that he doesn't want me to have. There's stuff in your house that he wants you to give to somebody else. And so he found every day of his life, and he still does this, he gives something away. He tries to find and discern what God would want him to give away that day. And so he gives something away. And he says when he started doing that, the most incredible thing happened. When he starts getting rid of stuff, his hand is open to God, right? All of a sudden, God starts putting other stuff in his hand. And all of a sudden, he has more than he thought he would have and planned on having. And God begins to bless him because he's got an open hand. And he tells a story that, that there was a man in his church um, whose car broke down. And the man was a, the, the main provider for his household. And he had an extra car. He only drove, uh, he had an older car. But he gave this man, he said the Lord impressed him. And he gave him his newer used car. It wasn't a brand new car, but a used car. And he gave him his car and said, just, just take it. You know, you need to provide for your family. I have this other car I can drive. I just go back and forth to the church. I live right around the corner. You need it worse than I do. And he gave it to him, and he didn't think about it, but um, he started going to this little restaurant for lunch every day, and he would sit in there at lunch every day. He'd pull up in this older car, and he's a little old school, so he'd wear a suit and tie every day to the church, and uh, I'm not there. I'm not that level of spirituality yet, um, but he would go in, and he would sit, and he'd dress very nice, very sharp guy, and uh, the restaurant uh, owner was a sole proprietor, and he, he would serve him there, and they would, they would chat back and forth a little bit. And the man would leave, the pastor would leave, and then he'd come back again the next day. And finally, one Sunday, he went in there, and he had his wife with him. And they were sitting at the table, and this, this business owner came, finally came over to him and talked to him. He says, man, he said, I know we, we've made small talk, but he said, I'm having the hardest time figuring out who you are and what you do. He says, because you come in here every day wearing a suit and tie. And he says, but he said, clearly, you're a man of means, that, that you, you have a good job and a good life, and uh, he says, but you drive this old car. What is that about? Why do you drive that old car? He couldn't fathom it, right? And so Brother Hargrove just begins to tell him the story. He said, well, there's a man in my church. I'm a pastor, and I, I gave him my car. And while he's sitting there, the man reached down into his pocket, 
And he pulled out the keys to about a year-old BMW and laid them on the table. And says, for some reason, I feel like I should give you my car. I should give it to you. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. You can't do that. I, we don't know each other that well. You can't do that. And his wife is kicking him under the table. <laughs> Take it. You need that car. You're driving the old hoopty out there. <laughs> and he says, man, he said, I, I just I don't feel good about taking it. And the man said, I've never felt this way in my life about anything. He says, but we have a whole bunch of cars at our house. We're very blessed people, and we just want you to, I just want you to take this. Just drive it. If you're not comfortable changing the title, you just drive it. Just take it and drive it. And he said the Lord spoke to him sitting at that table is that you have to receive it. You opened your hand to give. Now open your hand to receive. Here's what I'm telling you. I'm not telling you to do this so that God will bless you. But all of the pressure of life can be taken off of you and off of your future if you can just do this with God. And say, God, whatever you have for me that you want for me, Lord, that's what I want. Somebody say it's called God gravity. It's God gravity. God bringing to me the things that he wants me to have and taking things from me that he doesn't want me to have. There's a story I read today. I never, I've heard of her, but I, I was refreshed and I didn't really know the full story. That in 1891, a lady named Biddy Mason was laid to rest in an unmarked grave in Los Angeles. It wasn't unusual for a woman born into slavery, but it was remarkable for someone as accomplished as Biddy. After winning her freedom in a court battle in 1856, she combined her nursing skills with wise business decisions and made a small fortune. As she observed the plight of the immigrants and prisoners uh, uh, around her, she reached out to them, began investing in charity so frequently that people began lining up at her house for help. In 1872, just 16 years out of slavery, she and her son-in-law financed the founding of the first African Methodist Episcopal Church in Los Angeles. The AME is a denomination that still exists today. Biddy embodied the Apostle Paul's words. I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul came from privilege, not slavery. Yet he chose a life that would lead to his imprisonment and martyrdom so that he could serve Christ and others. In 1988, benefactors unveiled a tombstone for Biddy Mason. In attendance were the mayor of Los Angeles and nearly 3,000 members of the little church that had begun in her home almost a century earlier. Biddy's most prominent quote was this, The open hand is blessed, for it gives in abundance even as it receives. The hand that gave so generously received a rich legacy. Ladies and gentlemen, when you live with an open hand, you are living in a different ecosystem than the world. We live without the anxiety and the turmoil of things that will happen. When I lose things, it's because I wasn't supposed to have them. It was because God was removing some things that maybe I didn't need or He didn't want me to have in my life. But when I gain things, it's because God has said that they are mine. And God has placed them in my life. I don't have to worry about my future. I don't have to live as a slave to my past. Why? Because my heart so trusts God uh, that my hand is open to receive what He wants me to give. And to give what He wants me to give. Amen? Somebody say, I want to live with an open hand. 
And so, uh, the, kind of the last thought I want to share with you is, is about living at the speed of faith. Living at the speed of faith. Have you ever tried to hurry God up? Anybody ever tried to rush God? I do it about like five or six times a week. God, like, hey, I'm waiting. <laughs> Woohoo! I'm going to pray harder, God, so you make sure you hear me. That's why Pentecostals pray so loud. We're impatient. <laughs> God, we need a miracle now. Right? That's what we do. Maybe that's not the entire reason. I think there's some passion mixed in there. But we try to rush God. You know, Abraham and Sarah tried to do the same thing. God said, I've got something I'm going to do in your life. I'm going to give you a son. And you know what they tried to do? They started getting discontent. Because of the promise in their life. And they started trying to rush God. And Abraham comes up with his whole own plan. He says, well, Sarah, if it's not going to work like we thought it would, let's just make it happen. Let's just go after it. God said it's ours. Let's just go after it. We'll bring in Hagar and we'll, we'll have her uh, have a son. And, and uh, Ishmael will be the one, right? And so they have this son. And uh, it messes up the entire plan of God for their life. It messes everything up because Ishmael becomes the enemy to the son that God promised. The Bible calls him the son of the bondwoman. And not the son of the free. Sarah is the free woman. Hagar is the bondwoman. And the Bible says that the son of the bondwoman wars against the son of the free. In other words, when you try to rush God. And you try to push God. And you think that God is taking too long. And so you're going to help God out with the timing. When you force your will... And you have a close hand about how it's going to come to you. You mess it up. Every time. Martha and Mary, think about this. They thought Jesus was late. Somebody say, he's never late. He's never late. This is God manifesting flesh. He's never late. You might think he's late, but you're, you're early. He's not late. The Bible says they come up to him after Lazarus has died and they say, If you had been here, our brother would not have died. You're four days late. Lazarus died and the window is closed and hope is over and they have a closed hand. They say it cannot now happen because of the timing. They are not living at the speed of faith. They're living at the speed of fear. They're trying to rush God into doing what they thought he should do when they thought he should do it. And God shows up and he blows the whole thing up because he says, you're waiting on the right window. And he says, you don't understand. I am the resurrection. I am the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live again. I, I don't need your constraints. I don't need your time. When we live at the speed of faith, we will not rush God and we will not foolishly charge God for taking too long. Why? Because we have an open hand with our life. We're saying, God, whenever you want to do it. If you said it, you will do it. I'm, I'm just going to open my hand to however it needs to happen. God, just let it happen. We need to learn to live at the speed of faith. You know, Jesus died between two thieves. How many of you remember that? Jesus died between two thieves. And you know what? We live between two thieves. And you know what they are? They're named yesterday and they're named tomorrow. God, if you would have, if you would have done that. And when we live looking back at life, we can get frustrated and say, I should be further than I am now. 
I should have more than I have now. I haven't reached my goals. The things that you've put in my heart haven't happened yet. And so we can live between these two thieves that steal our joy, that steal away our contentment, that steal away our hope, that steal away our ability to trust in God. And and then there's tomorrow. Tomorrow can beckon to people. What are you going to do with your life? How's this going to end up? You're running out of time. It's never going to happen for you. You better take every opportunity that you get to make it happen. And we can live between these two thieves that steal from us the ability to trust in God. And so here's what I'm, it's it's not complicated. I know this isn't a pretty, I'm, I'm pulling from everywhere that I can pull to try to get this across. But when we open our hand, we free ourselves when we seek first the kingdom of God, this is the theology of contentment. That if I seek first His kingdom, that's His will. Not just His will for others, but, but His will for my life, His will on earth, right? Heaven on earth. When I seek His will and His righteousness, His ways, when I'm trying to find what God wants for me and my hands open. And, and, and I'm not stuck on how I want to do life, but I'm saying, God, show me your righteousness. Show me the right way to live. Show, teach me how to parent. Teach me how to be a, sta- a, a, a spouse. Teach me how to do my job. Teach me to lead. Teach me to do these things. When I open my hand to God and I say, God, you are first in priority in everything. And whatever you want for me, I want for me. We transition ourselves out of frustration and into faith. And we began living life at the speed of faith. We're not in too big of a hurry. Anybody ever felt like you're in a hurry all the time? We're not in too big of a hurry. We can relax and take it easy. Because the Bible says that it is our Father's good pleasure to give us all the things that we need. It's His good pleasure to do that. Stand with me. Somebody say, it's His pleasure And so I can relax. I can take a breath. Somebody try that right now. Just take a breath. I can open my hand. I don't have to be fearful or frustrated about life. I don't have to foolishly be angry at God for the things that haven't happened the way that I thought they should happen. Listen, I had a mom die of cancer. Nobody wants that. But when you live in a God gravity, you're willing to say, God, whatever your will is. Whatever it is. I look around this room. There's people who's lived through stuff that you never would have chosen for yourself. But God has taken it and he's used it. He's made you who you are. And so we've got to start trusting God with the outcome. Trusting God. I don't know about you, but I want to open my hand to God. If you feel that way, would you just lift your hand? God, we pray right now that your spirit would speak to somebody's heart. That your spirit would speak to somebody's life, God. God, there are people in this room that have been living frustrated. That have been living fearful. They've been in a hurry, God. They've been uh, angry that things haven't turned out the way they wanted it to. But God, I pray that you would help us to loosen our grip on the things of this life. Loosen our grip on our hopes, our dreams, and our desires. And open our hand 
for you to put in it what you want to have. God, I pray that you would transition us into a God gravity. God, get, let us walk in so much trust that nothing can phase us, that nothing can bring us down, that we have joy unspeakable and full of glory, that we can be joyful, that we can thrive in the midst of what others would call trouble because we've opened our hand to you in Jesus' name. We pray. If you believe it, would you just say amen? Amen. I want our ushers to come. Do we have any ushers tonight? There you are, Brother Nikki. We're going to take our tithe and offering, and uh, I pray that you will open your hand um, tonight for the tithe and offering. Amen. That's, that was less funny than it sounded in my head. Amen. We want to we give to the kingdom of God and um, pray the blessing upon it here in just a moment. But uh, I, I want to encourage somebody. I, I don't know why the Lord put this on my heart. We're here on a cold Wednesday night. You're going to walk outside and be blasted by 32-degree air. And there are faces that are missing in this room. But my prayer for you is that it will change your life like it changed mine. It will loosen you up to have faith in God. It will loosen you up to trust God that even if it doesn't look turn out like I thought it would, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. That thing that I'm so invested in, if I open my hand to it, God's going to take care of it in His own way. Maybe not like I thought, but in His own way, He's going to take care of me. It's our Father's good pleasure to give to us the kingdom. Amen? And so when we seek the kingdom, He's going to give it to us. Amen? He's going to bring... You know what? There are going to be people that are going to be used in spiritual gifts. And the reason you haven't is because you're holding on tight to what your thought process is. you got to open that hand and say, Okay, God, if you're going to make me crazy to... The tongues interpretation person, Lord, make me that person. But God's going to use some people in this room. He's going to use you to give. He's going to use you to pour into his kingdom. But we've got to open up our hands. Amen. Let's, let's pray a blessing over the tithe and offering. Lord, we thank you for the gift that was given here tonight, God, for everybody who gave to your church. God, we pray that you would bless them accordingly. In the name of Jesus, we pray that you would anoint our service here Sunday. And God, mobilize this church and empower this church to become all that you've called it to be. In Jesus' name. Everybody said amen.